0: Well, good morning. Welcome to everyone in the venue and here in the auditorium and all those watching online. Aren't those great testimonies? Really good brief testimonies. We'll be looking at a number of those across this series. Appreciate those folks sharing a bit of what has helped them in their marriages. And um, yeah, appreciate you coming back for week two. I didn't know if you would after last week. Thanks for joining us for the ride of your life. If you're looking, I'll just do one more plug in addition to the excellent words that Carrie Carpenter just said. If you're looking for a way to integrate yourself into this community, you're looking for a way to strengthen your relationships. Next week is critical with the Life Groups and Care Ministries Sunday. I can't think of anything more important than having a handful of other strong relationships with people that are walking in the same spiritual direction as you are And so if you don't yet have that, encourage you to be a part of the life group and care ministry Sunday next Sunday immediately after both of our services. Let's open with a word of prayer and then we're gonna jump into Genesis 1 and Ephesians 5 today. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy to us. We thank you for the blessing it is to be together in this wonderful place to worship you with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. We give ourselves to you. Thank you, Father, for the great testimonies of marriage amongst so many in this room, in the venue, amongst those while watching online. It's a joy to reflect on all that you have given us. We do pray for every marriage in this room, all those who are thinking about being married. Perhaps someone's dating someone and they're thinking about it in the future. Perhaps someone's wondering if we can hold on to our marriage. We pray for each of those, Father, that you would strengthen them today, that you would speak to us this morning and throughout this series, you would give us your conviction and your leadership. Show us where we're missing the mark and what we can do to bring health to our most important relationships. Father, this is also Sanctity of Life Weekend and Martin Luther King Day tomorrow, and these are just great reminders to us Uh, This weekend, that every single life matters so greatly to you. And our vision statement here at this church is every person matters. And we believe that from the moment of conception until the grave. Every single person matters for eternity. And we bless you, Lord, for how you care for us. We bless you, Lord, that you show care for the marginalized and the oppressed and those who cannot speak for themselves and Father, on this weekend, we declare that we believe that, that every person matters, and we would want to be a part of eradicating racism in all of its ugly forms and standing for life every day across all of life. And we want to be a part of standing for marriages as well. And so we ask for your help today. We pray, God, that perhaps you would use us in someone else's life who is struggling in this area. And I pray, God, that you would prepare some single people in the room today as well. As we're going to get into some really important content from your Word, so I'm asking God that you would do a great work in us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right, let's let's get into it. We're in week two, the ride of your life, and uh, week one we talked about the amount of work that it takes to build up a really great marriage. Uh, next week, I encourage you to come back as we'll be talking about parenting during the young ages, and also parenting during the older ages and grandparenting, and all of that as parenting really never stops. And how do we work in our marriage through our parenting, or as a single parent as well? We'll be talking about all that in, uh, next week. You know, it really doesn't take long, but before you run into a speed bump in a relationship, does it? Like it doesn't matter if it's a friendship, a sibling relationship, your parenting. Certainly marriage, it doesn't take long before you run into some serious speed bumps in your relationship. And when you do, you always have a chance to either cut loose or to work on it. And what we wanted to say last week, and I'll just reinforce it for, for a moment here today, is that the main problem with our marriages and most of our relationships is generally our own selfishness. And we start there working on our own selfishness, and then we're able to build a great relationship. Well, we we begin with our own responsibility for things. And we start there well with our good work, and then perhaps while we're trusting that our spouse will do the same thing. And fulfillment in relationships, please get this. Fulfillment in relationships comes on the far side of hard work. It's not on the near side. Okay, hard work first, leading to delayed gratification of fulfillment in relationships. And one of the main problems that we have in relationships today is we expect to be fulfilled immediately. And it just doesn't work that way. And so we noted last week that we build up our marriages. If you're a husband, you build up your marriage by offering the gift of loving presence to your wife the way that she wants it, the way that she needs it, the way she feels it. And wives, you build up your marriages by propping up your husband and getting to understand him a little bit better and seeking to respect him to build him up. And together, that can lead to this wonderful cycle. Now, help me out with just a little bit of audience participation here in the auditorium and the venue. You can join in this at home if you're watching online as well. But just just start by pointing your finger out toward the stage. Would you do that? Okay. Come on, y'all. Join me. All right. Y'all are really pointing at me, okay? Now take that pointer and point it towards your nose. Okay, let's do it again. Pointing out. Okay, this is called the responsibility shuffle, what we're doing right now. It's your fault. That's the responsibility shuffle. This is called the responsibility posture. Join me now. This is the responsibility posture. And so we begin in our relationships by saying... I take responsibility for building up my relationships. It's not mostly her fault. It's not mostly his fault. I take responsibility for my part. And that's a kind of a cardinal principle for Christianity, isn't it? If you're serious about Christian faith, you're serious about personal responsibility. And, of course, that leads naturally to our relationships as well. Let me give one qualifier here. If you've been abused, if you have been the subject of infidelity, okay, that's not your fault. I'm not blaming you for that. Please hear me. There are qualifiers to what I just said. No one ever deserves to be abused, ever. But a good general principle for all relationships is I take the responsibility posture. And if you want to have success in relationships, I strongly encourage you to start there. That was last week, the necessity of work in our relationships. Today, what I want to talk about is leadership in our marriage, leadership in the home, leadership within marriage. Now, when I say leadership in the home, I know that there are some porcupine needles that shoot up into the air, Because somewhere along the way, you've probably been instructed, either from home or from church or from school, on what leadership is to look like inside the home. And oftentimes, that instruction was kind of short-sighted, and it didn't give a whole lot of explanation. But there's certain expectations that kind of become part of our cultural milieu wherever we live, and we're just kind of told generally, this is the way women must do it, and this is the way men must do it, and this is what leadership looks like in the home. And there's this subtle expectation as it relates to this topic that oftentimes boils down to something like this, men, your job is to provide and decide, And ladies, your job is to work in the home and submit. Get some housework done and submit. Sadly, it becomes that simplified as we talk about this subject. And sadly, what that can lead to is ladies hearing that leadership is all his, and they feel like this. Okay? And men hearing, leadership is all mine? And they feel like this, what? Like this sense of being overwhelmed. Now, it's possible you don't want to admit that today, but that's true. That's true. That's how many men feel when they think leadership's all mine. That's how many ladies feel if they would be told it's all his? Here's the deal under the influence of sin every human culture has found a way to interpret the issue of spiritual leadership in a way that tends to marginalize and oftentimes sadly has oppressed women and in fact at the same time interpreting it in a way that oftentimes feels overwhelming utterly overwhelming for men What I want to say today is that it's way more complex than that. Leadership in the home is way more complex than that. And our differences that we do have between men and women are not something to sneer at. They're not something to joke about, not something to snicker about, like there's a lesser class, a lesser gender, as we oftentimes think. No, the differences that we have between men and women are something in God's ordained rule to bless us. And it's our job to understand why. Such that we could be blessed by the differences that God has given us. And if we understand the differences that God has given and how that operates in the home, then we'll be a little bit closer to that wonderful old saying, happy wife, happy happy life. Or even better, another saying that should be even more famous Happy spouse, happy house, yeah. (laughs) All the men say amen, right? We want both of those. So let's just be open-minded as we get back to the Bible this morning. We're going to dive into Genesis 1, which you'll find on page 1 of your Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one as our gift to you out of the information table. If you're using an app of some kind, version or another one, you can certainly turn with me there to Genesis 1.0. And uh, we'll also have these verses on the screen. But uh, it's interesting, the very first mention of humanity in the Bible includes a mention of both male and female. Genesis 1 verse 27 says this, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Now, as, as you look at that verse on the screen here, do you see any ranking there? No. There's no ranking at all. God created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them equally. Equally in his image. Equally in his likeness. God imbued into men and women a stamp of who he is equally on both of them. There is no hierarchy that one is better than the other. They're equally blessed by God, equally challenged to follow God's law, equally created to build and to create as well. Now, God looks at Adam in chapter 2 after creating him, and he says there's something missing in Adam. Chapter 2, verse 18... God looks over all that he has made, and he looks over Adam, and the Lord God says, verse 18 of chapter 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, in the first two chapters of the Bible, you might go back and read them later on today, but in the first two chapters of the Bible, God looks over all that he has made and all of his beautiful creation, and like a master artist that sees her beautiful canvas. In this case, God sees his glorious canvas, all that he has made, and he says again and again and again, this common refrain, it's good, it's good, it's good. Eight different times in the first two chapters of Genesis, God looks over his master handiwork, and he says, mm, so good. He's so pleased with what he's made, including you, so pleased in making you. But here, He looks over what he has made, and he says, not good. It's not good. And specifically, he says, it's not good because he's alone. He says, it's not good for a man to be alone. He looks over this man and says, there's something missing there. Now, what he's not saying is that you have to be married in order to be joyful. That's not it at all. People have sadly interpreted it that way, but that is not what the Bible has said. In fact, in a couple weeks, well, we'll talk about God's high calling to singleness who many of the greatest leaders in the Bible lived out, okay? So it's not saying that you have to be married in order to be happy or joyful. That would be a wicked idea. But what it is saying is that we're better together, It's saying that we need each other. In fact, we need a couple deep, abiding relationships with other trusted people in order to be a fulfilled person that is living out our creative order in the image and the likeness of God. And so God makes a companion. He makes a lover. He makes a friend for Adam. I want you to circle these two words there in verse 18. Look at it again on the screen. It says, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Circle those two words in your Bible, helper and suitable. Suitable here communicates this idea of two puzzle pieces fitting together. They're not complete opposites. They are complements to one another. They're similar in certain ways, but psychologically and physically, they are made to complement each other, to come together, that she would be suitable to him. And clearly, that's exactly what God has done. Now, also, he made a helper for him. Now, helper, I would say, is a very unfortunate translation of the Hebrew word in this verse. The Hebrew word is ezer. Ezer does mean helper, but ezer means more than what we think of when we think of the word helper. I don't know about you, but well, when I think of the, hel- of the word helper, I tend to think of a little bit less than. Anyone else? Okay, I see a few people nodding their heads. Many of us, when we hear the word helper, we think of a little bit less than. That's not what it's communicating at all. The word helper, ezer here, ezer, is used for God himself. Okay, over and over again, the Old Testament speaks of God and calls him an ezer, A helper. Helper is also used for military reinforcements that are provided for Israel in battle. Bring in the ezer. Bring in the helper. Okay, it's not greater than and less than. It's actually, I need to make a strong helper who is so strong that you would make up for some of your weaknesses. That's the idea. And that you're so strong, man, as well, that you would also make up for some of her weaknesses. So God the Father in the Old Testament is called an ezer helper. Uh, The Holy Spirit in the book of John, I believe John chapter 14, is also called a helper. Helper is far from being a bad word. Helper is a blessed and wonderful word, a word of strength. Anyone who thinks that God has relegated women to a lesser role of junior helper has simply missed the fact that God himself is both helper and servant throughout the Bible. So with that as a backdrop, turn over to me all the way to the book of Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians in the New Testament. You go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Then you go to Acts and Romans, First, and Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. If you go over to Philippians or Thessalonians, Colossians, you've gone just a little bit too far. And now that you have that tour of the Bible, sorry about all that, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. This is uh, the word of the Apostle Paul, and this is probably the most explicit um, set of verses in the Bible as it relates to marriage that we have. And uh, the key passage that we're going to look at here is Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. We can't mine it all, but we'll mine some of the the wonderful insights from this passage. Ephesians 5, verse 21, are you there with me? All right, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me stop there for just a second. This is where a great marriage actually begins. That a husband would submit to his wife out of reverence for Christ and a wife would submit to her husband out of reverence for Christ. That They both say, I fear Christ. I have this great sense of awe At the greatness of God, and therefore I choose to defer some of what I want for him. I choose to defer some of what I want for her. I choose to place her first, to die to myself on a regular basis, and submit some of what I want, some of my will, for hers, for his. This is the headline for this entire passage Everything else falls out of this verse twenty-one. Then it goes on to say this in verse twenty-two: Wives, submit to your husbands as so submit, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as the as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking here about Christ and the church and how it relates to a husband and wife deferring to one another loving each other, building each other up, just like Christ did for the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife. Here's how Paul concludes it. You men must love your wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, let me just break this down. It's a long passage. We can't be comprehensive in this, but Here's a few insights that you want to take from this critical passage related to marriage in the New Testament. What Paul is saying is wives, you would be really wise, you'd be really, really helpful if you followed him as he follows Christ. Okay, not follow him as he doesn't follow Christ into areas where he's not following Christ. Don't do that but follow him as he's genuinely following Christ. And what you see from the Apostle Paul here is this beautiful cycle in which husbands are loving their wives in such a sacrificial, servant-oriented way that they are building their wives up to become the most beautiful flower that God has intended them to be. And she feels such love from him on a regular basis. She feels such protection from him on a regular basis. She feels that he offers his presence to her on a regular basis, such that she says, as a result, I respect you, and I even would follow you at times when we would disagree. So much is made in this passage of the word submit as if it's some nasty four-letter word. Now, the key idea in this passage for ladies is not submit. The key idea is respect, to prop up, to build up, to bless your husbands that way. And the key idea for men is to offer love, sacrificial love to their wives. Again, that's the concluding remark and the opening remark is you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But I think what Paul is doing here is leading couples in this. He's preparing couples for those occasions within marriage rare occasions within marriage in which husband and wife have a very difficult decision to make and for whatever reason they are at odds with each other. And they've gone back and forth and they've really been in prayer many times for several months. They've been praying over a very difficult decision they have to make and perhaps they've been talking to other wise counsel, other Christians that are further along though than they are. And they're really listening to each other They're not making a decision and pretending to listen. They're genuinely listening to one another. But for whatever reason, after a number of months of praying and listening and seeking wise counsel, they remain at a standstill, and a decision has to be made. For those who have been married for a long time, would you raise your hand if you've ever been there? Anyone? Okay, I see a handful of people raising their hands on that. Uh, It doesn't happen a lot. Like, if you're doing what I just described... A husband loving in that kind of way, genuinely listening, genuinely praying, it doesn't happen a lot. I would say in my 16 years of marriage, this has happened once. Because God is kind. And God wants to speak to husband and wife together. He's that kind. He's loving and he is generous. He cares about you. He wants to speak in communion to husband and wife. The one time it happened in my marriage Uh, Susie had a job offer in a really rough inner-city neighborhood. She's a speech-language pathologist, and it was a wonderful job right in the center of the kind of work that she wants to do. But it would have involved her going into a home as a woman by herself, oftentimes perhaps with just a man there and maybe his kids, or just a woman there and maybe her kids. And she would not have the right in that instance to say, my gut just tells me I don't feel safe in this situation. So I'm not going to go into this. She wouldn't have had the the right to do that in this job. And so I just said to her, Susie, I know this looks like just a a great, great job, but I just don't feel safe about this. I I don't don't feel like this is a a, a good, safe option for you in this particular neighborhood. And um, there's other options out there. Can we look at some, some other options? And And she said, I trust you. I know you're out for my good, and I'll go with you. Okay, it was a difficult decision to make, but ultimately we were both glad that we made that decision. She saw that I was trying to play a protective leadership role, and then she said yes to following me as I sought to follow Christ. Does that make sense? Let me suggest a few principles about this. The first one is this. Submit is not a bad word. Submit is a good word. God submitted. Jesus submitted all the time to God the Father. As you read the book of John, which we will do this year, Jesus submits all the time. It's not a bad word. Uh, we want to read the Bible, not Hollywood. Okay? Okay? The Bible says submit is actually a good word. Second, if you're a good leader, you won't have to ask people to submit. You'll almost never, ever have to do that. A good leader simply leads with love and service and sacrifice, and there's a beautiful cycle that emerges out of that. And third is this. You always read the Bible in context. One of the reasons that a couple of these verses have been abused so terribly sadly, by some men in the church is because they've been taken out of context. When you read the entire context of this passage, as I just did, from verse 21 to verse 33, what you see is an incredible responsibility that is placed on the shoulders of husbands. I mean, a man should never walk over his wife and ladies oftentimes hear these passages and what they feel is a level of fear that he's going to come in and walk over me. And, and there's, there's none of that allowed in, here, in this. None of that at all. It's, it's, a, it's a sacrificial, servant-oriented, loving leader. It's a different leadership model than the leadership model that comes from the world. And so if you've ever hurt your spouse, man or woman, emotionally abusing or physically abusing, there's only one answer to that. You repent, you apologize, you weep, and then you rebuild trust. You slowly rebuild trust. You see, the simple truth is, in all honesty, across all of the marriage passages that we have in the New Testament, there is a greater demand on husbands than there is on wives. Husbands, though, this is the call for you. Husbands, you're to think of yourselves as a servant leader. Listen to Jesus in uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. The disciples are coming to him, and they're asking him for a model of leadership, and they're actually asking him, how do I become greater? How do I become the greatest, though, they're saying to him. They just didn't really get it. And Jesus calls his disciples together in verse 42 of Mark 10. calls his disciples together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers or leaders of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. This is not my model of leadership. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first Must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whoa. Hello. That's a different vision of leadership. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. To pick up a towel and a wash basin, to get on his hands and knees and serve. Serve. You see, Christian leadership is not about me and mine. It's about we. How do we succeed together? It's not about me. It's about we. It's not about my privilege. It's about my responsibility. Not about my rights, but about giving up my rights for the needs of my spouse in this case Jesus-centered leadership is all about humility and service. And I think it's really hard for us to understand this model of leadership because we're surrounded by leaders who just aren't like this, right? Like we look at sports leaders and business leaders and political leaders, and on and on we can go, and they generally do not follow a servant leadership approach, do they? It's very rare. But when you find a leader who leads this way, oh, it's a beautiful thing and it leads to that wonderful life-giving cycle that I was just talking about. Verses 25 and 26 of Ephesians says this, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives just like Christ did it as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. You you, you just go ahead and love that way, husbands. You die to some of what you want in order that she would flourish more and become more and more the radiant woman of God that God wants her to be. And truly, when you have a husband who's attacking his own selfishness as the main problem in his marriage, Then you have a wife who attacks her own selfishness as the main problem in her marriage. Then you got an opportunity for a truly great marriage. Taken together, here's God's design. God's design is that husbands would generally be the servant leader and the wife would generally be the strong helper. Okay, There's going to be exceptions in certain areas of life that one is going to lead in one area and another one in another. But generally, though, that's the way it is. According to the New Testament, increasingly secular psychology is actually getting wise to the plain fact that men and women are different, we're made different. There's a feminist study espousing these differences. Back in 1982, Carol Gilligan wrote this book called In a Different Voice, published by Harvard University Press. And it made huge waves in the psychology literature. And using all the qualifiers in the world, Carol Gilligan argued that men tend to grow. This is from an atheist psychologist, feminist psychologist, who said men tend to grow into maturity by exercising their independence, by exercising their freedom and their self initiation. That men grow into maturity through these leadership traits. And women, by and large, tend, as they grow into maturity, tend to exercise that maturity by becoming more interdependent, to becoming more perceptive to other people, to wanting to help people more, to being more encouraging, to building others up. These are companionship traits and leadership traits. And when these two are in synergy... They build each other up, and the kids are able to flourish. Isn't that interesting that a feminist psychologist would say what the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago? My point is simply this, that God has made men and women different. He's given us various innate gifts that are intended to balance each other out in the home, and taken together with all of the nuance of culture and personality, our various skills, Uh, We have different spiritual gifts that God has given us, and all of those are qualifiers that we have to take into consideration. But you take all of these together, when the husband says, I'm going to be a servant leader, and the wife says, I'm gonna be a really strong helper that builds up where he is weak, then you have an opportunity for that couple to really do awesome things for the kingdom of God. They're able to do more for the kingdom of God together than they could ever do by themselves. Let me just give this word for wives and for husbands. For husbands, a servant leader needs to reject passivity. Let me get real, real practical here. A servant leader needs to reject passivity. You might remember way back in Genesis 3 that trouble ensues in this first marriage. And the trouble law looks like this um, God creates beauty, and uh, they say together, it's not enough. And the wife goes over outside of the boundaries that God has given for human flourishing and she sees a A bit of food that looks good for eating, and a tempter comes and says, God is holding out on you. And this is what the tempter always does. The tempter always comes and says, God is holding out on you. And she covets what is not hers, and the text says this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he said, why not? And he joined in it as well. And immediately after that, what happens? They go into hiding. And right after going into hiding, what does he say? It's her fault. She did it. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he's watching and he's eating and he's blaming and he's doing the responsibility shuffle, isn't he? He's kind of hanging out. And, and friends, this has been the curse on men ever since. It's the curse of passivity. Okay, she needs my help, but I think I'm going to hang out over here and eat some Cheetos. Uh, we all know too many men that do that And that's sadly the stereotype of men that you see on sitcoms all over the place. Anytime you watch a sitcom, you inevitably will see a male who is either incompetent or passive or both. And that's a false stereotype. It's a terrible stereotype of men. But it does have its roots in this historical moment in which Adam is just kind of standing idly by as his wife is falling And then he blames her. And so guys, this is what you can do to reject passivity and bless your wife. I mean, think about the different ways that you can reject passivity. Here are a few. You You could reject passivity by sitting down and making a list in the home of who is responsible for what and then following through on all that you committed to being responsible for. Like, make a list of the house duties. Who's responsible for what? Don't just entrust it all to her. That proactive leadership will bless her and it will prevent reactive drama on the back end. Proactive leadership always prevents reactive drama later on. She's hoping for you to reject passivity and serve courageously. She's hoping that you would reject passivity and initiate with the kids. She's hoping that you would reject passivity and initiate romance with her. She is hoping that you would reject passivity and lead some family devotions so that we all can grow spiritually together. A servant leader rejects passivity, and a strong helper joins in the battle. A strong helper joins in the battle. So if I'm the head of our home, I can promise you that Susie is the neck and she's a very strong one. She's able to kind of guide me and direct me, and she wisely does so, and I'm so grateful that she does, because the weight of leadership is oftentimes too heavy for me to handle on my own. And this is true in organizations, and this is also true in families, that what we really, really long for, men, isn't this true, men, what we want is someone to join us in the battle and to see this is difficult, what he's doing right now, this leadership that he's taking on, I will take off some of the weight and join you in the battle of leadership for our home. I want to be your partner and enter in with you. And sometimes Susie will just enter in and she'll take some of the lead off my plate. She'll see that I'm kind of weary and she'll say, hey, can I take this for you? In our home, I generally lead family devotions from the Bible every night for five or 10 minutes, no more than that. Every night, family devotions from the Bible. And Susie generally leads the prayer and the singing because no one can handle my voice. <laughs> no, she's, just, she's better at singing. She's got a beautiful prayer language. Sometimes she leads the family devotions, which she leads far from the Bible. Sometimes the kids do. But I organize it. I reject passivity. I embrace my responsibility, and I go get it. And then she helps me along the way because it's too much for any one person. Ladies, just a few practical tips here. If, if, if your husband leads spiritually, honor him in that. Bless him in that. Like, thank him for that. Don't say, I'm too tired for family devotion tonight. Join in and say thank you and bless his efforts, even if they're not as good as you would like them to be. Ask him how you can help with leadership. Suggest a few ideas that you could bring to the table because he wants your ideas. He wants your opinions. We value each other's opinions in the home. Tell your children the aspects of dad's character that you appreciate. What are the positive aspects of your husband that you can speak to? This is what a good husband is. This is what a wonderful father is. Speak of that. It helps to build him up, helps to prop him up. Occasionally, ladies, what if you did this? Join him in an adventure. Because men, as we mature, we love to spread our wings. We love to have an adventure of some kind. And when you join us in that, it says that what we care about really matters to you. And bless him in his attempts to lead and provide, bless him in his attempts to provide financially, even if it goes far below what you hoped he would provide in terms of leadership and finances. He's aware of that, and he's probably insecure about it. So how do you bless him in the midst of that? I think of a story that I heard, and I'll close with this, from Pastor Evie Hill and his wife Jane. And Pastor Evie Hill was this wonderful pastor who served faithfully for 55 years, predominantly at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. And he and his wife Jane were married together, did ministry together for some 55 years before she died of cancer several years ago. And um, at her funeral, Pastor Evie spoke. He gave the eulogy, and he spoke of many times that she built him up across their long ministry together, but he spoke of one time that he was having difficulty as a young pastor in an inner-city church, and they're having difficulty together as a couple and difficulty in the church, and he comes home far from work, serving in the church well one day, and as he returns home, he enters into the house and goes into their little dining room, and at the dining room, he sees a whole bunch of candles around the the beautiful table with dinner on the table, and he's like, "Wow, Jane set the table for us and built a candlelight dinner. How special this is going to be!" And then he goes into the bathroom to wash his hands, and he turns on the light, but no light comes on. And then he goes into the bedroom to take off his sport coat, and he turns on the light, but no light comes on. And he comes back to the dining room table, and he says, "Jane, what, what what's going on? Where's the electricity?" I Tried to turn on the light in the bathroom and the bedroom, but uh, did, did we lose our light service? Do we lose our electricity? And Jane said to Evie, honey, you are working so hard. You are trying so hard to provide for our family. You work so hard every day, but we're just having difficulty making ends meet. And I couldn't pay the light bill this month. And so rather than bring it up to you, I just thought it would be better for us to have a candlelight dinner together. And he spoke about that at her funeral. That this was a turning point in which he learned he always had this strong helper who always had his back. And they operated in this beautiful cycle that I'm talking about for 55 years such that together they did far more for the kingdom of God than they could ever do independently. A servant leader and a strong helper together for the glory of God. So Father, that's what I'm asking for the marriages in this room. That's what I'm asking for my own marriage. Father, that I would be a better servant leader, more sacrificial less interested in my stuff, what I want, and more interested in what my wife and my kids need. And Father, we ask for all of our marriages that you give us grace as we navigate this with all of the personality and the culture and leadership skills and giftings that you've given us. And it's gonna be different for each and every one of us, but God, we do want to honor your word. And we don't want to sneer at it. We want to listen to your word and apply it to our lives. And we pray that perhaps we would get into this beautiful, life-giving, rejuvenating cycle in our marriage that we're building each other up on a regular basis because we are respecting each other and loving each other and looking for ways that we would complement one another. Father, I pray for any in this room who are struggling in their marriage right now that maybe from this message you would identify just one way that they can contribute something good to their spouse, one way that they can attack their own issues without focusing on their spouse's issues, and that you would lead us to a sense of thriving together as couples. We'll be careful to give you all glory and credit. We ask that you would do more in us together than we could ever do individually. We know that's what you want. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.